September 3rd, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Title of this podcast is Jack Inhibitor Madness or Not. Let's get into it. But first, before we talk about the new FDA warning about Jack Inhibitors, let's talk about some news. Then we're going to go into some cases, some back talk where you, the listener, gets to ask me, the mouth, what I think. I like the study that comes from Caleb Mashad and the, his group that does this very large forward registry of RA patients. Um, in this very large prospective registry, they showed that obesity was associated with about a 75% increased risk of using strong opioids. And that if you look at all the patients who are on strong opioids, it could be attributable to, yes, obesity. We're talking about BMIs greater than 35 and whatnot. And you can make do the math. You know, obesity, um, more back problems, more joint problems, more pain, more pain, more opioids. Basically something to pay attention to. Lupus patients, you know, we've been doing a really good job managing lupus over the years. A lot of new therapies, a lot of aggressive therapies, a lot of experts leading the way on better management of lupus. And I like this particular um, review of lupus mortality over a 10-year span. Specifically, it looks at the national inpatient sample, which is uh, uh, looks at all hospitalizations in the United States. And they looked at a period from 2006 to 2016. Uh, and amongst like a bazillion people, they found 1.9 million lupus patients who are actually hospitalized. And over that span, um, or, or over that span of 10 years, the rate of mortality dropped from 2.2% down to 1.5%. That sounds like it's a good thing. It's a, basically a, almost a 1%, 1.5% um, risk of death if your lupus patient gets put in the hospital. I've always said that when lupus patients go in the hospital, it's usually for a medical reason, not for a lupus reason. It's going to be a lupus reason if they're in there for CNS reasons, if they're in there for fever and infectious reasons, it's a toss-up with infection usually winning out more so than lupus. But all other hospitalizations are more likely to be medicine issues in that lupus patient based on their age. Think about that. Argue with me if you will. But again, the numbers are going down. But here's the sobering part. That improvement of 2.2 to 1.5% is not new, meaning... It's been stable at 1.5% since 2008, 2008. All the improvements were had between 2006 and 2008. Hmm, what went on then? Not a whole lot, meaning uh, new therapies haven't made a big difference, at least recently, or maybe they haven't been out long enough, or maybe you're not using them enough. So uh, it'll be interesting to see as this goes on whether this gets better. Yes, interestingly, there were more lupus-related mortalities in Hispanics, African Americans, Asians, and Pacific Islanders compared to Caucasians. Again, that racial disparity issue is a very bothersome one in um, in lupus. Uh, I've talked about flares in RA. I think it's something we need to focus on and have better rules for. Um, but you know what the rule is: they flare, you give them steroids. Well, that was actually looked at in both the BEST study and the IMPROVE trials, where, again, very large, very independent trials, but they both showed the same um, uh, outcomes as far as what happens when you discontinue steroids. 
when you discontinue steroids, 40% of patients are going to flare. And that when you restart the steroids because of that flare, and then you again try to discontinue, the rate is even higher. It's 50 to 60% the second time around. So what are you going to do here? Well, really the only guidance on when to discontinue is when the DASH 28 score is low, both at base time, baseline, and also when you want to withdraw the steroids. Other than that, we need a new game. Uh, a nice report from Phil Robinson and Nicola Dalbeth and team um, looking at the risk of gout based on uric acid numbers. And specifically, they use three very large databases, the ARIC database, the Framingham database, and something called the Cardia uh, database. And they showed that the risk of developing gout in non-gout patients based on uric acid levels was measurable at levels that you wouldn't consider ele elevated. So um, the highest level that they reported was uh, a uric acid of 6.5 to under 7. Um, and there the rate was 3.2%. And when it was over 7, it was 12.2%. So those are substantial uh, rates. But even at a uric acid of less than 4, 0.59%. Um, a uric acid of 4.5 to 4.99, 0.86%. From 5 to 5.5, not 0.94. So it's basically under 1 until you get to about 5.5, and then it goes up to 1.5%. Um, 6, it goes up to 2.9%. 6.5, and 3.2%. The point is you can have gout in patients who are normouricemic. I saw this in a guy who had horrible tophaceous gout, and he had a normal uric acid level and was still having bad, bad attacks. So there's more there than meets the eye. It's not always just the uric acid level. It again, reinforces the notion our diagnoses are not lab diagnoses. They're clinical diagnoses. Um, how long do you treat polymyalgia rheumatica with steroids? If you're like me, you're, you've convinced yourself and you try to convince your patients that you're only going to be on steroids for a year or two. <laughs> Wrong. Well, this meta-analysis looked at long-term steroid use in PMR patients, 24 studies specifically, and the numbers of patients still on glucocorticoids at one year, 77%. At two years, 51%. So you're only right about 50% of the time when you say what you say. And I'm saying the same thing, by the way. But at five years, 25% of patients are still on glucocorticoids. I find that um, sobering. So patients who are more likely to stay on steroids um, with prolonged use or have relapses that frequently end up with more steroids being used, more so in women than men, those who have high acute phase reactants, those with peripheral arthritis, it is somewhat dependent upon the starting dose. So the lower the starting dose, the greater the, the risk and tapering speed. The faster the taper, the more the risk. And then how do you know it's a PMR flare versus a steroid withdrawal flare? That's another lecture in and of itself. We have to talk about COVID because, it, as we mentioned last week, it is still on the rise. A nice study from Wuhan looked at 1,200 patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19 in Wuhan. This is back early in the pandemic. And then they studied their outcomes a year after their discharge. So these are hospitalized patients, survived, sent home. Um, a year after, they all had... Uh, more than half of them had symptoms at one year, two-thirds had symptoms at six months. Those at 12 months after discharge, 
Most common symptom was dyspnea, 30%, depression, 28%, a lot of pain and mobility problems. Women were more likely than men to have prolonged symptoms. We've talked in previous reports about symptoms and um, post-COVID manifestations that linger. I didn't mention whether that was what whether that was sex related here they mentioned that it was related to uh, women more so than men so i think it's uh, again something you have to expect in your patients that you follow who have developed covid uh, in the news lately is what happens in our immunosuppressed patients um, when they receive the vaccine um, this article, I believe, from Lancet looked at the Octave study, uh, looked at 600 people who were immunocompromised, uh, and that included both cancer and immune-mediated inflammatory diseases like RA, lupus, etc. And they compared the vaccine responses to normals um, if they were immunocompromised or had uh, or on immunosuppressors, they were uh, less likely to seroconvert to an acceptable level, 89% versus 100%. Um, so not too bad, but Overall, uh, 40% of the immunocompromised patients had a low antibody response, and 11% of the immunocompromised patients had zero antibody response. I find that a little worrisome. Another report yesterday from the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine also looked at a cohort of patients from Israel, over 8,000 patients. Um, uh, No, I'm sorry. They looked at a cohort of 143 uh, uh, immunocompromised patients, rheumatic disease patients versus 53, and they showed that um, what you already know is that it's glucocorticoids and rituximab and B-cell depleting therapies, the ones that don't have good responses. But they put a big question mark about um, uh, other drugs, including the JAK inhibitors and uh, cytotoxics, where there was a, a lot of variability in antibody responses. And we've mentioned that in past um, reports on room now. Uh, a nice report, not from our literature, but another looked at the gut microbiome and how that influences response to checkpoint blockade targeting CTLA-4 or um, PD-1, program death one and uh, these were in advanced melanoma patients. And this has been seen in other reports in the cancer literature where that the microbiome plays an important role in response to chemotherapy. And now we're showing this here for uh, response to the checkpoint inhibitors that signatures for bacteroides and uh, another GI bug, not familiar to me, they, had, they were more likely to have grade three uh, immune-related adverse events. Uh, and they postulated with some of the uh, mechanisms that they referenced and what their results they showed that this is because those patients are inducing IL-1 beta. IL-1 beta is driving further inflammatory disease, further um, evidence of IRAEs. Uh, again, I, I put this in there because we think about microbiome as being important in disease activity and maybe it adds to the pathogenesis of the disease, maybe its mechanism isn't so much affecting the pathogenesis as much as it's affecting the um, drug therapy and the response to drug therapy. I think that's something that bears further investigation in the future. I don't know if you saw this tweet this past week. Um, a lot of rheumatologists weighed in on this, most, most of whom said it was a bunch of bunk. But it's a journal of clinical investigation, a good journal. I try to look at all journals looking for interesting things. And they got a, a paper in there about the passive transfer of, of fibromyalgia using IgG from fibromyalgia patients and putting in mice. And the mice all of a sudden started saying, oi, ooh, ouch. 
No, I'm just joking. Fibromyalgia patients were tested for um, um, pain responses, uh, response to mechanical and cold stimuli, nociceptive responses, and they were clearly different in the animals, the mice, who received uh, human fibromyalgia IgG versus normal controlled IgG. I don't know what to make of this. I don't think of fibromyalgia as a an immune-mediated um, disorder. Um, this could be clackamania. This could be real. I think we should watch this and keep an open mind. I put an, I thought, an interesting report of something I'm not aware of, but it's a nice, tidy little story. Um, and that is uh, a bunch of researchers... Uh, I guess they saw this in their in their patients and, and in some hint in the literature, but they identified 43 patients from two large IBD registries, inflammatory bowel disease registries, 43 patients who had TNF inhibitor-induced IgA vasculitis occurring in IBD patients. Turns out most of these IBD patients had Crohn's disease. Um, most of these patients had um, Crohn's disease that preceded the uh, IgA vasculitis by a me- median of nine years. Um, m- almost all of them were had inactive disease, and 74% of them had been treated with TNF inhibitor uh, for over 31 months. At the time that they report this, half of the patients on TNF inhibitors had stopped to improve their symptoms. Overall, the treatments that were used in these patients was um, glucocorticoids, colchicine, cyclophosphamide, and a minority Primary manifestations of the IgA vasculitis as would be, as you would guess, um, purpura, arthralgias, renal disease, GI disease. But the interesting thing here is this. When they stopped the TNF inhibitor, the vasculitis got better in almost everyone. When they stopped the TNF inhibitor, unfortunately, a sizable number of them had worsening of their Crohn's disease. So... What do you do? Well, obviously, you stop the TNF inhibitor for the vasculitis. You find an alternative for the Crohn's disease. Everyone's happy. But I think it's a nice, tidy little story. Maybe the big story of the week might be the big story of the month was the surprise uh, report from an FDA drug safety communication, wherein they finally announced the results of their analysis of the 1133 study from Pfizer, so-called oral surveillance study, a very large five-year study wherein patients who are high risk for cardiovascular disease were enrolled and given either one of two doses of the uh, uh, Zeljans or Atofacitinib 5-BID or 10-BID, and they were given a TNF inhibitor. In the United States, that was adalimumab. Uh, In Europe, it was etanercept. Most cases were adalimumab. Um, And they found a higher uh, risk of uh, cardiovascular events, including uh, MI and Uh, Also, um, cerebral vascular accident stroke, also venous uh, thromboembolism, and a higher rate of cancer, mainly lymphoma. Um, And the interesting thing was that they're going to slap a box warning on tofacitinib for these results. But guess what? While that was a tofacitinib trial that led to all this, they're going to extend this warning to other drugs within the same inflammatory space. So that means baricitinib and upadacitinib are going to have a change in their label and their box warning that will include some warning about a higher risk 
be concerned about, discuss with your patients, etc., this potential risk. Again, this puts a monkey wrench into things, but the old, I think what I want you to know is that the overall numbers of events that we're talking about here are very, very low. So because there is this risk, because it's going to make the news, because your patients may hear it on CNN or CNBC, and they may stop their drugs on their own, I would not uh, recommend that they do that. The CDC, I'm sorry, the FDA came out and said that they um, want you to be aware of the data um, and that JAK inhibitors may be associated with higher risk of serious cardiac events, MI, um, blood clots, death, and um cancer, mainly lymphoma. They want you to discuss the benefits and risks of taking JAK inhibitors when either starting a JAK inhibitor or continuing JAK inhibitor, uh, especially in people who are high-risk patients, like that were in this trial, over the age of 50, cardiovascular risk factors, um, also patients who have a known malignancy or patients who develop a malignancy on such therapy. Nowhere do they say that you have to stop therapy um, because they're on a JAK inhibitor and because there's a small risk or any risk here, it is a risk-benefit discussion between you and the patients. Um, they do strongly recommend that clinicians reserve JAK inhibitor use for patients who had an inadequate or intolerant response to a TNF inhibitor. They've changed the game. It's no longer that you can use a JAK inhibitor after a methotrexate. Some of you can, some of you can't do that based on where you practice. Now, the FDA recommendation would be, and it's just a recommendation, but that you should fail a TNF inhibitor first before you would consider a JAK inhibitor. Uh, recommendations to patients, that patients discuss their concerns with their doctor. Patients who have a history of smoking, heart attack, heart problems, stroke, blood clots, um, should discuss their use of or continued use of a JAK inhibitor with their rheumatologist. Seek help if you get any of those events, and they recommend that patients read the medication guide, which explains these risks. So the medication guides are going to be updated. The um, the package inserts are going to be updated. They're not changed. They have not changed yet. Um, the manufacturers of all three agents, Pfizer, Lilly, and uh, AbbVie, are going to have to go into negotiations with the FDA as to what the package insert, the product label is going to say in that box warning. Um, and this will not just be an RA thing. This will extend to patients who um, take JAK inhibitors for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and in the future, ankylosing spondylitis or atopic dermatitis. Interestingly, the two other JAK inhibitors that are out there from BMS, and I can't remember the other one, but they're for um, you know, ruxolotinib and another one I don't know the name of, but they're for myelofibrosis or P-Vera for hematologic reasons. They did not extend that warning to those people because those are non-inflammatory conditions, hematologic conditions, because your patients are, that are on baricitinib or apatacitinib are being treated for the same inflammatory conditions as, was, as were the tofacitinib patients, then they feel that these mechanisms are likely to extend to those drugs. Really interesting, somewhat controversial. What do you think? You can go to Backtalk on the email or on the website, click on that and record your protest, advice, etc. and we can discuss it further. We had two questions from uh, on Backtalk this week. One from Christopher Adams. Hey, Chris. Uh, hey, Chris asks, do biologics, specifically rituximab, carry any risk for patients getting a heart cath or an intracardiac ablation um, or basically a procedure. What do you know about this? Because he couldn't find anything. I actually went looking all, as well, 
looking up TNF inhibitors, rituximab, biologics, uh, interventional procedures, um, high-risk procedures, invasive procedures, procedures, I could find no recommendation there. So my answer to Chris is no. I don't think that the biologics are of concern in patients having a procedure. Um, I think if they have recurrent infections from procedures, you know, um, then maybe you might want to discuss that. But the uh, if we're talking about biologics in general, um, you know the risks, um, and the, basically the worst thing you can do about risk with biologics is stop it so the patient flares and inflammation takes over, and then complications like infection ensue from inflammation, not more so than from the drug. Um, horribly complex patients are at a horribly increased risk no matter what you're treating them with, whether it's applesauce or cytoxan or rituximab, and you're just going to have to have a discussion with the patients. With Chris, I said... The biologic effects of rituximab is long. The procedure the patient's going to undergo is short and has no immunologic consequences. I view invasive procedures to not include dental procedures or ocular procedures. Um, but I'm talking about major intrathoracic, intra-abdominal, gynecologic um, joint replacement surgeries. There, I think your timing of your biologic may be important. And I think we've discussed that in the past. Dr. Vijay Kumar um, asked the question, do you check TB status annually on all RA patients on biologics, even if they've been on the same medication for years? What's your usual practice for checking TB? I used to do PPDs. Now I only do IGRAs, um, gametophiron releasing assays. Um, and we tend to do quantiferon, although we do the um, TB spot as well. Um, my procedure is get the... TB test done in and around the time that you're starting the drug. It doesn't have to be done before you start the drug. Um, I'm not going to freak out about that. If the patient's already on the drug for a week or two, it's not going to change the results. Um, and get it done before or at the start of therapy. Note that it's negative. Document the date. Um, I tend to recommend that the patients have it repeated in the first year or at the one-year point or if in the first year you change um, to another biologic, change, do the repeat test then, the same test, by the way, um, because what you find out is in all the people that are negative going into receiving a biologic, um, there is about 5 to 10%, and the average number in many studies is about 7% of patients in a low-risk, non-endemic population for TB. 5 to 10% will, on retesting, be positive. So there, what is that, what's going on? Well, the, the answer is that they were probably anergic from inflammation, so sick that you, and with inflammation that you want to start them on a new therapy and inflammation um, screwed up the test. And now when you take away the inflammation, their true positivity shines through. There's no reason to do annual testing. Anyone who does annual testing has no idea what they're doing. And I know the American Academy of Dermatology recommends it. I'm not sure who they got their advice from. It wasn't me. Um, and it wasn't Len Calabrese and others who, you know, Xavier Murray, Artie Cavanaugh, we've all looked at this. The idea is you do repeat testing when risk changes. They've been exposed to someone who's been infected. They travel to a high-risk endemic area. They have new symptoms with possible exposure. Then you do testing, okay? But to do it annually, nonsense. What if the patient has um, a, an equivocal result, you know, an indeterminate result with a quantiferon. Um, 
if my experience has been, if you repeat it after the patient's been on therapy, especially anti-TNF therapy, the response, that indeterminate response goes away. Uh, seldom, I've never seen it where it becomes positive, but it would be the same story. If it was once indeterminate, now it turns positive. Well, you controlled inflammation. Now it's a true positive. You got to deal with it. Okay. Um, one of the worst practices I see in this is that if you don't like the result you got and you're puzzled by the result you got, you go fishing for another answer. Like, I don't like my IGRA being positive. I'm going to now do the TB spot or I'm going to do a PPD. Well, that's playing a game that puts the patient at risk. Any of these that are positive are positive that need to be dealt with. Uh, and if you don't want to deal with it, then talk to an ID specialist about what they would do. That's it for this week. Hope you're having a good week. Wear the mask. Stay six feet away. Stay safe. Go to Backtalk. Give me some of your comments and questions. Take care. Bye.